This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Eva Hagberg-Fisher, the author of the memoir, How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. Fisher's writing has appeared in the New York Times, Tin House, Wired, and Dwell, among other publications. Her memoir, How to Be Loved, chronicles Fisher's exploration of friendship and illness as we see her grapple with making new friends after moving to California, dealing with addiction and a difficult childhood in her background. And then we move forward into nameable and unnameable sicknesses, the consequences of which involve heart and brain surgery and a desperate road trip to escape the symptoms that follow her. We began the discussion with Fisher reading a passage from the memoir that encapsulates a lot about her personality and character. She knew all the things I didn't like about myself. We went over a few of them. I was talkative, enthusiastic, bossy. I overshared. I expected too much of people. I was less focused than I felt I should be. I was self-centered and selfish and forgetful and didn't listen all the time. And if I wasn't interested in a conversation, I didn't even pretend to be interested. I was terrible at small talk. I went deep way too fast. I sometimes lacked boundaries, personal, physical, sexual. I came on way too strong and then disappeared way too suddenly. I was secretive. I never wrote thank you notes. I was easily distracted. I was jealous of my wealthy friends. I didn't particularly like to do anything that didn't feel easy. I was competitive. I was short-tempered and impatient. I should say, to all of the above, I am. Can you talk about this in terms of, was it hard to write? Is it hard to face these things in yourself? Because I think your book was so, so much an investigation of these things and who you are and how you can be that and overcome it and also be okay with exactly who you are in the moment. Writing it wasn't hard at all. And I think a sort of amazing gift of of this book and my experience writing it and my ability to just focus and be really pragmatic. I describe myself as as basically an accountant, but I work with words. Like I'm very dis- detached and dispassionate while I'm writing. So I wrote this and I thought this is great. I'm making the argument that I want to make. I'm providing evidence for why you know, Allison loving me unconditionally was so life-changing, but then I read this to my husband and he was like, yeah, that sounds about right. And then I was horrified and so ashamed and so embarrassed. And I realized that I'd sort of wanted him to be like, oh, Eva, like you're not, you're not those things. I mean, even though the whole point of this section is that, you know, I am lovable despite, or maybe because of these flaws, I still, when faced with a person who I know loves me unconditionally, I was like, oh, it really is true. I really, oh, God, I do overshare. Um, But I just had to leave it in because it's such an important. I love that you picked up that that paragraph um, because I think it is sort of the heart of the book, which is these things are all still true. You know, getting sick didn't make me a better person. I'm sort of the same deeply flawed person, but it just taught me, you know, Allison taught me the title of the book, How to Be Loved. 
my read of this was that your sickness came on in the book maybe the same way it came on in real life. You made intimations. I knew from the very beginning that at some point your brain was cut open. <laughs> you you let the reader know that. But I felt like getting to the sickness was sort of like a slow burn in the same way that maybe sickness would come on in real life. A lot of what I thought about structurally with writing the book was how to replicate or illustrate the emotional impact that events had on me. And so I do foreshadow, I mean, pretty early on that my brain is, you know, I'm going to have brain surgery in this scene where Allison and I are talking and she, she makes this observation about how she needs to have two holes in her head, right. To pour the wisdom in because the wisdom immediately flows out of her neck. And then I say like later when I came to her with a hole drilled in my head, we laughed and laughed and laughed. And so I wanted the reader to be like, wait, what? Like, if they haven't read the flap copy, if they've read no interviews, you know, if they've just picked it up and started reading, I wanted them to feel really surprised and also kind of want to find out what happened. Um, but then later, I mean, yeah, it was a, it was a horrific shock and it kept feeling like a shock. And every single medical thing that happened was as shocking, if not more shocking than the thing that had come before. Um, and I wanted, you know, I've, I've heard a couple people say that the book wasn't super easy to read. Um, and the word harrowing has come up a number of times and that's, I'm delighted for any and all reflections. Um, but it's, it was hard for me to see as I was writing it, that the material that I was writing about was in any way harrowing until I realized now with the publication of the book, that like that period of my life is done. And now I'm like, wait, what did I live through? Like, how did I survive all of that? And I want some of that sense of continued confusion and also wonder to really be present on hopefully every page. I'd like to, before we get to the sickness, talk a little bit about your perspective and who you were when the book opens. So there's kind of two things at hand. So the first one is your approach to making friends, I think was interesting. You said that you felt like you needed an angle, like you wanted to know where you stood in relationship to this other person. Were you smarter? Were you equal? You did liken it to landing a plane. You wanted to know all of the information you could possibly know about the landing strip, which is impossible in itself. But what was in your brain that made you think of friendship that way? And I would guess that a lot of it has to do with your childhood and maybe some of the addiction that you dealt with. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it has to do with my, with my childhood, which I give sort of little snapshots of, I mean, I try to have just illustrative moments. Um, I mean, my family is very, very, very accomplished. There are many PhDs. There are many, you know, international lawyers who represent like various royalty of various countries. Um, and so it was understood that like I would um, lead a life that was very, very, very accomplished and very high functioning. But my my parents just didn't they never facilitated any sort of social life or any sort of social interaction. And, you know, I remember being in my mid twenties and seeing my cousin who had a child and the way that she was very attuned to her child emotionally. I never experienced that. I mean, I just had no sense of somebody saying, you know, it's nice to share or it's, 
you know, it's nice to be kind or, but I just like, I wasn't educated in that way. Um, and I did my best, but I was really, really taught that I was very special and that I was smarter than everybody. And that, you know, I had to make sure that the friends that I did have were as smart as I was. And so that very, very early conditioning really set up this way in which, you know, I describe like going into the PhD workroom at grad school. And my first thought is like, okay, where, where do I fit? Okay. I'm smart. I'm pretty sure I'm smarter than that person. Ooh, that person is a lot smarter than me. Here's my place. I'm comfortable here. And I'm just going to do my best to like try and climb this ladder and get to be the smartest because if I feel like the smartest person in the room, then I'm safe. Um, because I just had never experienced safety based on emotions. Um, I'd never experienced like feeling like everything was okay because somebody was hugging me. I mean, I just, that's not ever where I found safety or meaning. And at the same time, I'm like a very regular human animal and I deeply crave connection and togetherness. And so I think that there was that drive to connect, but I just had very, very, very faulty skills. Um, I just didn't know how to be vulnerable and connect with people. And then you know, I've heard people say that addiction is a disease of loneliness. And, you know, I don't know why I'm an alcoholic. I don't know why I'm an addict. Um, but I do know that like my experience of feelings until I got sort of a different set of tools to deal with them was so overwhelming that I couldn't, like I had to seek oblivion in order to cope with my life. Um, because that fear and that desire to connect with people was so extraordinarily overwhelming. Um, and I just didn't have any capacity. Tell me about your journey from changing that to being trusting to maybe surrendering in some aspect that you can't control everyone and you have you have to trust that your friends love you and might be there for you. I mean, that is an on going lifelong struggle. I still, you know, the, the two days before book publication, a friend of mine hosted this like amazing event with some friends of mine. And I brought five copies of the book and I had them all like hold the book to their hearts and give it an intention. And it was this beautiful ceremony. And I still was like, why are, why are they supporting me so much? Like, I don't deserve this. You know, I don't like, this is too much. I was so supported when I was sick. I can't be supported now. Like this is all, um, extravagant. And so I think that I still have, you know, what my therapist has indicated as a core wound of like believing that I'm unlovable or believing this sort of inherent, um, not like worthlessness, but just because I think I'm, I'm, I think I have a lot of value, but I don't know how inherent it is. Um, but really it's just evidence. Like I just wake up every day and I think, well, every other day that somebody has attuned to me, every other day that somebody has shown me deep intimacy and care is a fluke. Um, and today I once again will be adrift alone in a sea of existential loneliness. And then somebody will call me or somebody will text me and just demonstrate through their acceptance of wherever I am or um, making fun of me for something. They just indicate like, no, they're actually with me. They're actually present. Um, and so 
I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question, but it's just, it's just constant experience. And I hope that with every experience, I get a little bit more trusting that this is not a fluke, that this is not temporary. Um, and that people actually really do love me. And I, and, and I think even more importantly that I'm able to really love other people. You know, I have this thing where I don't miss people when I'm gone. Um, I spent a lot of, you know, I went to boarding school. I spent a lot of time traveling. I have a lot of different families. And so I've really coped by not missing people because the pain of missing, you know, my father when he was gone was, was too much as a child. But when I see people that I haven't seen for a while, I'll feel so happy to see them. And I often, I'm sort of like, awkwardly over enthusiastic. And, uh, this happened recently. I went to the Bay area last week and I saw a friend of mine, Sarah, and she'll text me and say, I miss you. And I'm like, you know, I don't miss people, but thank you. You know, I love you, whatever. As soon as I saw her, I like couldn't contain my joy and I got to express it. And I think that that is the most important thing that I learned is like, it's okay for me to be like a puppy and express my joy. And that's actually not embarrassing. It just makes other people feel good. And then when I get to name it and say, you know, Oh, I feel so weird. I'm just so happy to see you. Then we get to have a chance at having actual intimacy. Um, whereas I think before, you know, before I got sick and before I met Allison, I just thought like, people are just going to think I'm weird, you know, if I do that. And nobody was thinking about how weird I was, but as I read, you know, I'm extraordinarily self-interested. So Allison seemed to be a conduit for you to both think about these more intense aspects of your life and how you've always behaved and how you wanted to move forward with loving others and loving yourself. And she was this very sick person that you were at first taking care of and then sunk into your own sickness. She had breast cancer that has metastasized all over her body. And at some point she knew, even though she had survived way longer, she knew she was going to die. And then in the midst of all that, you had brain surgery, heart surgery, an unknown sickness for a long time. Can you talk about your sickness? I, I had a couple weird symptoms growing up. I had this really extreme eczema and I had sort of weird headaches, but nothing that really rose to the level of medical intervention. Um, and I was living my life in Berkeley. I was in this relationship that was very, very stressful and very difficult. And I sort of felt like I was kind of losing my mind a little bit. I mean, I was getting really angry and I was getting really scared and really sad. There was just a lot of emotional kind of up and down. And I just chalked it up to the, the challenges of this relationship. And then one morning I was talking to my then partner and standing in the hallway. And I remember she was telling me some complaint about my behavior. And I felt this like wave go up my body. And I felt this, I, I stopped being able to see. And the next thing I knew I was lying on the floor and she was yelling my name and I woke up and the day before I'd like thrown up really randomly, but that had sort of happened before. So I was like, Oh, I guess I'm just, I mean, in retrospect, there were so many warning signs, but at the time I was like, sure, everybody just randomly throws up all the time, you know, or, or, or like throws kale around the kitchen. Cause they have so much adrenaline. Like these things are normal. Um, and she suggested that I 
go get checked out. So I went to the urgent care and they did an EKG and they said, well, you actually have this condition called Wolf Parkinson White, um, which is a congenital heart defect. And you should get this checked out within, you know, 48 hours. And they gave me a prescription for anti-nausea medication because I'd been throwing up and I got to the pharmacy and I couldn't figure out how linear time worked. I mean, I really was like, I have this prescription. What do I do with it? Like, I don't, I don't know. And I was really, really tired. So I just sat down on the floor of the pharmacy and, um, and my then partner was like, you need to go to the emergency room. So I did. And that's where eventually, um, it was discovered that I'd actually had a cyst behind my pituitary that had been pressing on my pituitary for some time, um, that had ruptured. And so I had blood, I had protein, I had, you know, cyst wall material just sort of in the middle of my brain. And the neurosurgeon was like, yeah, no, it missed your optic chiasm by like 0.5 millimeters. So, you know, we're not worried. And if it had gone into my optic chiasm, I could have gone blind. I mean, it's just this, this sort of like, really, you know, half a millimeter, a millimeter makes a lot of difference. Um, and then, you know, some doctors thought I shouldn't do anything and some doctors thought I should. And then one doctor tested my blood for this tumor marker, which is present in very, um, obscure sort of intracranial cancers. And my tumor marker was elevated. And he was like, listen, when you have an elevated tumor marker and you have this type of MRI imaging, I mean, it's pretty slam dunk for, a brain tumor. So I had the brain surgery and then was still in this waiting period and then had to revisit this heart surgery issue. It's Wolf Parkinson White, which was undiagnosed and then re-diagnosed. So eight months after brain surgery, I had heart surgery. And then I slowly got better, but I was still like really, really tired. I was kind of dizzy. I was getting like very low iron. I just had a lot of like sort of ambiguous problems and I couldn't sleep and I couldn't stay asleep. And I was doing all this, you know, I was drinking like burdock at, you know, 4 p.m. so that I wouldn't wake up at 4 a.m. And then I, I'd been seeing this integrative doctor and he asked me if I had mold in my apartment. And I vividly recalled there being mold on my windowsill. So I said yes. And then that started what became this sort of like, driving around the Southwestern American plateau, trying to find a place that didn't have mold, starting to wonder if there was mold everywhere because I just wasn't getting better. I mean, the doctor said, listen, move out of your apartment, get a new apartment that doesn't have mold, get rid of all your, you know, clothing and stuff like that. But like, you'll be fine. Do not move to Arizona. Do not live in a tent in Arizona. Stay off the internet. And, you know, there's a line where I say, like, the next time we spoke, it was from my tent in Arizona, because I just became more and more and more desperate to feel better. And so that's what I was really struggling with, with the last third of the book is like, was I psychosomaticizing trauma, or anxiety, or whatever? Or was I having physical reactions to mold and environments? And I really lived on this sort of precipice with everybody around me being really supportive, but also being like, how is it possible that you can't go inside a building? And until I got a diagnosis that actually tied everything together, I thought I was just going to live in a tent in the desert literally forever. You question if people don't believe you because you're a woman. And mm. I don't know if that is is true that these sorts of diseases 
if women are inflicted with this more or if they're more willing to talk about it. But it seems like there's an inordinate amount of stories out there where women are not believed. There are so many. I don't know if you're familiar with Maya Dusenberry's book, Doing Harm, which is this extraordinary reported piece where Dusenberry looks at the history of medical studies and sees that, you know, researchers will try and study women and then say, oh, this is too complicated. So we'll just study this drug on men and then, you know, give women the same dosage. And, you know, there's just too many variables with women's bodies. So she shows the really systemic discrimination and sexism in a way that was horrifying to read. I felt such profound anger while I was reading the book because it made me realize how difficult my experiences had been, but also how I just taken for granted that that was part of the challenge of being a sick woman is not being believed and not being understood. I have encountered men who deal with, with illness who are told, you know, that it's anxiety or they're making it up. But I, from my, you know, not a social scientist, I'm not a quantitative researcher, but from everything that I have read and seen, it very disproportionately affects women. Um, I was just at a symposium for a triennial called Broken Nature, and a researcher talked about how many more women die of heart attacks because the symptoms of heart attacks for women are different than they are for men. And they will describe them differently because women speak differently and they use language differently and they answer questions less, quote unquote, directly. And so they miss a lot of opportunities for care. So there's all this science that is, I think, starting to come out that backs this up. Um, and it's really, I don't know what it's going to get, what it's going to take to get doctors to take women more seriously. But I mean, even after all of this that I went through, right. So I've gone through this whole experience. I've learned to trust myself and I had surgery for endometriosis in December with a really top rated surgeon and had really, really awful pain a couple of days later and called him and he just said, yeah, like take two Motrin, you'll be fine. I guarantee you, I guarantee you, you'll be fine. And I just wanted to ask him like how his reproductive system is doing after surgery for endometriosis. I mean, he's never experienced what I'd experienced. And I don't think that you have to, to be empathetic or to be a good doctor, but his conviction that I was just like trying to get more pain meds felt so demoralizing. And you know, if any doctors are listening, like we don't want to be suffering. We like there's there's no upside to being in pain. We just want to be out of pain. And maybe teaching doctors how to listen to the way in which women talk and the way in which symptoms show up for women and how different those are, that could be very helpful. So the bulk of your book talks about the intersection of your sickness and friendship. But I just want to mention that something that you wrote a few times that was intriguing to me was at these times when you were really sick, you mentioned the Momofuku milk bar. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, which is now just called milk bar. I'm wondering if, if baking brought you solace. Oh, it did. So, so when I was preparing for heart surgery, I was wearing this heart monitor And I had been told that the danger was sudden death, right? So the danger of my condition is a, is a medical diagnosis called sudden death, which is exactly what it sounds like. And I entered this state of basically pure trauma and I was, I felt completely paralyzed because 
my brain was telling me that if I moved in some way or aggravated my heart in some way, I could die. And I had a month between scheduling the surgery and having this diagnosis confirmed and then having the surgery. So I had a month in which I was like, I'm, I really hope I don't die of sudden death before I get this fixed. And the only thing that I could do was bake from the milk bar cookbook. That is the only relief that I found. And so almost every day I would choose a different, and these, these recipes are very complicated. They're multiple steps. Um, they require all sorts of, not like that hard to find ingredients, but sort of, you know, you need like milk powder and Valrona cocoa powder and dried blueberries and corn powder, like freeze dried corn, you know, all these different things. Um, I had to get a Cuisinart and it basically, it, it produced like something that I could focus on that was not myself and my fear of sudden death because my usual go-tos like yoga or, you know, attending support groups, like even in yoga, I would get, I would get into a pose and I would be convinced that if I moved to another pose, I would die. And that sounds so illogical, but this is like the logics of trauma don't make any sense to anybody who isn't in them. But I really, I would be in down dog and I would be like, I can't get out of this pose. I will die. I will die. And my teachers, you know, knew me really, really well. And I went to the studio called Interstellar in Berkeley, which was really, really, everybody was really skilled, but I just like, I couldn't deal. And so I just baked, um, the birthday cake cake, which I think took me two to three days. Cause there's so many different steps involved. Um, I made chocolate truffles and brought them to I like went to a PR lunch for some reason. I can't remember. I, I think I was really grasping at any sort of normalcy. Um, but just the meditative focus that these incredibly complicated recipes gave me were so important. And it was also a really nostalgic thing because I'd lived in the East Village when the first milk bar opened. Um, you know, I remember going and seeing Christina Tosi herself, like scooping cookies onto a baking sheet and having, I mean, it was such a different, um, thing than it is now. And it's been amazing to see the, you know, incredible explosion of milk bar in terms of popularity, but it helped remind me that I had been a different person at one point and that I'd been a person who lived in New York and was ambitious and had a life and had a career. And I think part of my intense tie to that cookbook was about holding on to some kind of hope that like one day I would have a career again, because at that point my career was, was gone. I mean, I had not, I had no, I was nominally in grad school, but barely. So mm -hmm. as you're sick, you learn to lean on friends. It's not that you didn't have friends. You might not have been in touch with friends from college and old friends, and you made some new friends. Some of the interesting things that you talked about was even while you were sick for a really long time and they were always there, if individuals became exhausted, the group was unexhaustible or that friendship was about love and that the details didn't matter. Yeah. I mean, I think that my experience taught me that friendship is not about keeping score. And that's one of the things that Allison taught me was that it's not about parity, P-A-R-I-T-Y. So that was one thing that I learned. But then the other thing is exactly what you brought up, which is so crucial, which is like relying on one person only has never worked for me. And I had a couple of friendships that got into a very sort of like codependent dynamic. Um, and it was hard to, to untangle. And so I asked a friend of mine, I asked Jason, who has a couple, couple walk on moments in the book. 
about what he had observed. And he was like, you just asked for help. And then whoever offered it, you accepted. So a lot of times I'd post on Facebook and just, cause I didn't have a driver's license. I'd be like, I need to ride to the doctor, you know, Tuesday at 9am, I'll bring snacks. You can, you can bring the music. And then whoever offered, I would just make a practice of accepting. And I got to know a lot more people that way. And there's still some people that I haven't been in touch with for years now, but I just remember like, oh yeah, they, they took me to that ultrasound or they took me to that PET scan or we went to, um, California pizza kitchen after that, you know, like other ultrasound. Um, and I learned that if I rely too heavily on one person, then we stop being able to actually have a true friendship. Whereas when I sort of spread the needs out and really let people volunteer for stuff, then other people get a chance to be of service. I mean, a lot of this is sort of like a spirit of rotation, which is that everybody gets an opportunity to serve. Everybody gets an opportunity to be served and be helped. Um, and there's also just something that I've learned in the last couple of years about the magic of just like a power greater than myself that happens when people come together in a really deeply honest and intimate way. So in the midst of being sick, you met someone and got married. You were at the point where you were, maybe you could use the word recklessly, trying to find people to have sex with just to have <laughs> sex and feel yeah. a body next to yours. And yeah. one of the people that you met turned out to be this man that you married. And I'm wondering if if marrying him changed your own idea of your own lovability, because it was something that you mentioned earlier, you didn't really believe in. I mean, I, I keep learning in this marriage about my lovability. So I, you know, having a book come out is very intense in ways that people had told me it would be, but I didn't prepare for. And while I was in Oakland, I just, I, I had this whole like crisis of my life, right? I was like, what is my life? Am I living the right life? What am I doing? You know, everything is different now. Am I an artist? Am I you know, whatever, like I had all these sort of thoughts and I came home and my husband is a very, very, very smart physicist and has chosen to basically, I mean, I joke, he's like one, <clears throat> one marriage away from being a hermit. I mean, he like fully has considered living in a monastery. Like he does not engage with the world in the way that I do. So I was like all fired up for my successes and I came home and I just like came in hot. You know, I was like, I don't know what you're doing with your life. Your life is weird. What are your goals? You know, basically telling him that he's bad and wrong, which is sort of a default for me when I'm uncomfortable. And he was so loving and just sat with me and was like, well, you know, this is how I find value in my life. And I really like to watch like YouTubes of, you know, complicated scientific things. And, you know, our lives are really different. And I think, you know, I certainly don't want to lead your life and I think you don't want to lead mine, but what a great thing that we get to love each other. And it took me sort of 48 hours to kind of calm down. And I came home last night and I was like, you know, it's just so nice that you really love me. Like you understand that whenever I'm away for a couple of days, I get a little shaken off kilter. I get a little kind of worked up definitely having the book come out has got me even more worked up and he's so patient and loving and doesn't take things personally. And yeah, I feel, you know, my therapist made this point, which is that like getting sick kind of slowed my role enough that I could, I could see this person whose life is so different from mine, whose ambitions are so different and give myself an opportunity to be with somebody who really balances me out. 
And at the same time, I think of my marriage as a constant series of answers to this question of like whether whether people who are so different can really make a life together. And sometimes I'm like, this is so great that I'm with somebody who like barely goes outside because he's so supportive of my art and he's so, he sees me so clearly and he sees all of my flaws and he loves me and he just wants to hang out with me. And then sometimes I'm like, this is so weird. Like I'm somebody who should be with another writer or I, you know, so I have this sort of ongoing negotiation and the thing that's different in this relationship from all other ones is that I never explicitly say that we don't talk about it, but I think he can feel it. And he gives me the space to have all of these experiences. Um, and he's really good at detaching and just knowing like I'm having a moment of doubt or, I'm not sure about this. And instead of like pushing me to recommit, he just sort of lets me work it out. Um, and then, you know, I try to come back and say, I mean, last night I, he sent me off to get a massage and I came back and I was like, I'm so grateful that you don't take it personally when I come home and I just start criticizing you, you know, and that's not behavior that I like. And I try to get help with that and <clears throat> work on it. But, you know, those grooves for me are really strong and really available. Um, right. Like criticism is my love language. Um, and I don't want it to be. So it was a great surprise to all of us that our one night stand is still going five and a half years later. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? So this is a passage from Melissa Broder's novel, The Pisces, which just came out in paperback. It's extraordinary. Everybody should read it. I myself had a very complicated relationship with emptiness, blankness, nothingness. Sometimes I wanted only to fill it, frightened that if I didn't, it would eat me alive or kill me. But sometimes I longed for total annihilation in it, a beautiful silent erasure, a desire to be vanished. Tell me why you chose that. The Pisces is about a PhD student who falls in love with a merman. Um, and really it's about I think love, love addiction. I seek oblivion all the time. I want to disappear. That's part of why I drank. That's part of why, you know, when I was so scared, I looked to just have sex with people because I thought that that would give me oblivion. The clarity with which she is able to articulate the sort of inconsistent desires that addicts often have I think that it's so perfectly articulated in this section where she's so afraid of it, right? She's afraid that it's going to eat her alive or kill her. But then there's also this longing for total annihilation. And I think that that's something that if you understand that, if you share that longing, her encapsulation and articulation of that is so precise that it feels like the most resonant description of myself and my thoughts that I've ever seen. I mean, it's like, I do have this desire to just slip into the abyss of, of the in-between, you know, not permanently. I always want to come back, but I just long for this like perfect break. And I think that that's what the Pisces is about in some sense is this longing for this moment of like pure sexual ecstasy that is actually a break from the world and it's attendant concerns. Um, and I just think she's such a 
careful and precise and visceral and lyrical writer. I mean, I read the Pisces and I was like, I should stop writing because this book is perfect and no book will ever be as perfect. And instead I just worked harder at my own writing to, to try and, you know, because I felt inspired. Um, yeah, I just think it's an extraordinary novel. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or was tricky or hard to write. This is a section that used to be 90 pages and it's now two paragraphs, which is about my relationship with Cameron. It's actually one paragraph. As soon as we moved in together, the sex stopped, replaced with near constant conversation, deflection, muted desire turned into aggression. She criticized me for being too loud, too messy, too sloppy, for eating too much candy and chocolate. I criticized her for being too reserved, too quiet, too straightforward. She criticized my sobriety. I criticized her choice after 10 years sober to drink. She criticized my cooking. I criticized her belief that she needed to be gluten-free. We saw a therapist together who suggested that our chakras were incorrectly aligned. And then we saw another therapist together who suggested that we were in a dance of approach and withdrawal. And then we stopped seeing therapists together. My body became a topic. I'd gained weight my first year of grad school, and so I was too fat. I lost 20 pounds. I was too thin. I didn't work out enough. I should do more yoga. I should do less yoga. I had committed to her so quickly and so strongly and so publicly that I felt trapped. And so, of course, I started flirting with a member of my writing seminar. And, of course, I retreated into a world of silence and questioning the rules and almost, almost kissing him one night. And then just as soon as I'd started betraying my body once again, my body betrayed me. Can you talk a little bit more about choosing that? I was talking to a friend of mine, Sarah, who knew about the whole relationship. And I'd written these 90 pages that were just like relationship drama. And then my editor kept like very gently and judiciously cutting them down. And Sarah said that she re- she remembered that story and she read this paragraph and she was like, yup, that was two years. And so it felt like I wanted to read it because one, I love that I went from 90 pages to two paragraphs and kept the exact same point. Like the point can be made in two paragraphs. Um, And also because it's an indication of how I use time in the book where there's a lot of compression and expansion of, of time. Um, And some, you know, this period covers two years, but it kind of tells you everything that you need to know. And I also just think like, I feel like maybe people can relate to having a relationship that's like so awesome. And then all these sort of little things start happening and you just start criticizing each other. And another novelist friend of mine had given me the advice once to use the particular to get to the universal. And so I feel like this paragraph is just an example of using these like very particular criticisms and fights and discomforts. But actually, I don't know, I kind of feel like we've all... I never want to universalize, but maybe many of us have been in a relationship where the details are different, but that feeling and the sort of inexorable downward slide is the same. Where do you write? Anywhere that I'm not comfortable. So I do really good writing on planes, in airports, in libraries, in workspaces. I don't have a desk. When I did have a desk, I never wrote at it. I basically write when I'm in an interstitial space. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I try. I, I try yoga. I exercise. I go for walks. I listen to podcasts. I meditate. But it doesn't. I am always thinking about a sentence or a plot or a structure 
so this is why I fantasize about oblivion. I, th I think that being under anesthesia is the only time that I can get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My commissioning editor only. How have you dealt with rejection? I try and feel it. I try and feel the fear and the loss in my body. And I put my hand on my chest and I remind myself that I live in present time and I live in this body. And no matter what magazine I am in or am not in or what book somebody wants to buy or doesn't want to buy, that I'm okay. I don't live actually outside of myself in rankings or reviews or positive feedback, but it is a constant, constant struggle. And what is your favorite word? Liminal. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Eva Hagberg-Fisher, author of How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.